But I entitled today's message, Heads Up, for one of the major issues that we're going to be addressing today is the return of Jesus Christ in the future, his uh, imminent return. And I wanted to begin with a quote by William Barclay. He said this, the best way to prepare for the coming of Christ is to never forget the presence of Christ. Uh, a lot of folks seem to believe that you can hide from Jesus and that somehow it's going to be shocking when he shows up. Then suddenly you're going to feel embarrassed. You all understand that Jesus sees everything you're doing right now. I mean, it's no, there's no difference. If you constantly live in the idea that Jesus is present with you, then there's not much different than when he returns. Because then he will be present with you just in a slightly different form. Um, now, a lot of people have tried to uh, use manipulation tactics to say things like, you know, what would you do if every day was your last? And I've shared this with you before. Um, I've, grew, I've grown up in a different environment than maybe some of you. And I went to a school that was very much focused on uh, end times events. So when we talk about the end times today, this is uh, kind of bittersweet for me. In one sense, it's very exciting about the fact that it leads into next year's theme. You all know by now that next year's theme is the year of what? The year of Revelation. And we will be studying the book of Revelation, examining through the prophecy of the Old Testament as well as the New, and doing a very, very in-depth study. But when I was growing up, remember, I grew up as a very fearful child. And so one of the very negative things about how I grew up was everyone talked about the end of the world all the time. Well, as a child, that's very scary. And so uh, every day that I woke up and the sky was slightly reddish, then surely I was left behind every day. And I was always waking up thinking that something was wrong. And, and then, of course, I never believed that. And I can tell you this honestly, there's never been a day when I literally thought that I would live through the whole day because uh, the idea that Jesus could return that day was so baked into my mind uh, that every day that I've ever lived has always been like my last day. So that's why I laugh when speakers try to think they have this big, you know, manipulative jump on me when they'll say things in their message like, what would you do if today was your last day? And I'm like, buddy, I've been doing it all day long. What are you talking about? Not only that, but I'm a hypochondriac, so bring it. What do you got? Because I've had a tumor all day long, and I'm just about to die anyway, so it doesn't matter. But maybe that's effective in other environments. It's certainly not with me. But we do have to have some concept that Jesus is going to return, and we have to ask ourselves, are we ready uh, if our life was to cease at this point, if God decided to wrap things up and take us home would we be ready for that? So when we get into this message today, there's a couple of things that you need to know. Uh, number one, we are going to focus only on the major issues, and I'm going to drive a lot of you nuts today. Uh, if you are a prophecy geek or a, a prophecy freak where you love to study this stuff and you can't wait for me to weigh in on the pre-mid-post-trib debate and you can't wait to see if I'm all millennial or how it's going to work out, I'm not going to answer any of those questions for you today. And so it might well drive you nuts. But we're going to focus only on the major issues. Now, next year, I will be weighing in on a lot of those issues. Because we will have the time to go through them in detail and begin to break them down. But in the 45 minutes that we have today for teaching, it's going to be very, very difficult for me to weigh in on any of those. As a matter of fact, I have not come to you in recent memory less confident about what I'm about to teach than today. 
Uh, I walk in very humble in today's lesson because the I put extensive research into the message today. And here's the unfortunate thing. In all my research, every scholar that I read disagreed with every other scholar. Not one agreed. So this is a very highly debated text. Uh, it's talking about at least two major events as we walk into this. Jesus jumps back and forth, and you're not sure if he's talking about the future. You're not sure if he's talking about the past. You don't know if he's talking about his return or the siege of Jerusalem, and we're going to get into all that. But even amongst the details, they're so radically different from verse to verse that unless I decided to spoon feed you one particular view, uh, really there's no way to handle this in the time that we're given. So what I have chosen to do is major on the major things and let some of the minor details stay aside. So I put in a rather irritating and simplistic fill in the blank in front of you, but actually it's the heart of the message. Here you go. This much we do know. Christ will return. There you go. There you go. When? Don't know. How? Don't know. Will Christ return? Yes, he will. And that is the heart of the message today. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, and we can dive into Scripture. Uh, as normal, I will be bringing in Mark and Luke's account um, as well as I read through the Scriptures uh, so where I deviate from the Matthew passage, that is what I'm doing. Uh, I'm just going to read the first three verses actually in Matthew, and then we'll pray for the word and, and get started this morning. So it begins like this. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those are very fair questions to ask, and perhaps all of us have asked those questions at one time in our lives. So when is this world going to wrap up? Now, this question was precipitated by Jesus saying last week, he closed with saying, Jerusalem, you're going down. Your house will be left to you desolate. So it made the disciples go, so when's that going to happen? And that is where we begin. Would you pray with me for the word today? Heavenly Father, we approach this knowing that we do not have all the answers. Lord, we approach this with uh, nervousness and asking, Lord, would you speak to us and let us know what we need to know? That, Father, there's a lot of things we want to know. And just like the disciples, we're going to try to pin you down as far as timings. And, Lord, that's not something that you're willing to discuss with us. However, there are a lot of things that you do want to minister to our hearts and say. But I pray that we would not get lost in the academics of it, but be caught up in the transformation of knowing that you are king of knowing that you will return and knowing that you are worthy of our praise. May we not move from that place here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now then, as I told you, the two main issues that are going to be addressed today stem from the two major questions of the disciples. Now, they thought they were asking one question. They were actually asking two when they heard that the temple was going to be destroyed, they wanted to know when the temple was going to be destroyed. And they assumed that if the temple was going to be destroyed, that was significant enough to usher in the end of the world. 
So they asked one question. When is the temple going to get destroyed so that the end of the world might come? Well, what Jesus did is he said, ah, actually, those are two questions. The temple will be destroyed. Yes. However, at a later date, I will return and end the world. So he gives them a very complicated, mixed answer to where he goes back and forth, past, future, past, future, immediate context, major future context, and it begins to get a bit complicated. So I'll try to do my best in at least ironing some of it out, but certainly I'm not going to answer all of your questions. But it did begin rather fascinating Now, there's a lot of times in my studies, I'll go through and I'm reading these people that are just absolutely brilliant and just make me look really, really silly in in contrast. But as I read these, a lot of times they'll make a point and I'll go, yeah, I totally considered that point. It's neat how they know it better than me, but I've I've considered that. Then there's times when I read stuff and I go, man, I would have not seen that for the life of me. Give me a thousand years, still wouldn't have figured it out. I came across one of those that I thought was so significant and so valuable that I would bring it to you this morning. And it all starts from the first half of the first sentence. There's something significant in this sentence. If you combine it with the account of Mark, here's basically how it starts. As Jesus was leaving the temple and was walking away, pause, that was it. Did you catch it? See, I didn't catch it either. Uh, as Jesus was, le- isn't Jesus allowed to leave places? <laughs> isn't he just allowed to walk somewhere? Why is that significant? Well, because it's mentioned twice. Now you say, well, maybe you're making too much out of it. Well, a lot of scholars believe that if something is mentioned twice in scripture, there's usually a significant reason for it. It's trying to point to something. And basically the way it reads is this. Jesus departed from the temple and as he was walking away, something occurred. You go, all right, got that. He left. He left. All right, we're moving on. No, he departed from the temple. What what, what was he doing in the temple? You remember last week? He cleansed the temple. We all remember that story. Remember, he threw over the tables and he chased everyone out. But then he did something more. He then set up shop in the temple and began to do what? But minister to the needs of the people. He began to heal. He began to teach. He began to talk with them. And he began to restore right worship in the temple. As if he was saying, now this is really what God wants. But then he departed from the temple. He goes, still not tracking with you. All right. In in Ezekiel, everybody familiar with the book of Ezekiel? It's basically a really, really freaky book. Okay. If you read that stuff, keep going, whoa. Okay. And there's a bunch of creatures flying around. It's just a bizarre book. In Ezekiel chapter 10 and 11, something very significant happens. Ezekiel is given a vision of an enemy nation coming in and destroying Israel in 586 B.C. But before that occurred, something major had to happen. What was that event? The glory had to depart from the temple. Do you remember that? Now, here's how it goes. Um, in our world today, we think of Jesus being worldwide and we say things like, well, he's just as present with you as he is with me. When you're praying, he's right there with you. When I'm praying, he's right there with me. And we have very much of a global view of God, this very omnipresent kind of Jesus all dwells in our hearts kind of concept. That is not an Old Testament view at all. That is a post Pentecost view. 
That is not at all the way that the Old Testament works. So in the Old Testament, God chose to operate in a much more localized way. What do I mean? Well, let's start examining some of the stories of the Old Testament. When Moses wanted to meet with God, what did he do? He built a tiny little tabernacle called what? The tent of meeting. He would go out to that and then all of Israel would wait and watch Moses walk up to this tent. And then what would happen? This huge cloud. Do you remember this? The cloud of the presence of God would descend down upon the tent of meeting. And then everyone would wait while Moses talked with God face to face. Then the cloud would lift and then Moses would come out and go back home. So in one way, you saw that was the localized presence of God. Well, add to that, when the Jews were walking through the desert, they had something by day and something by night. What? The localized presence of God in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. So you began to see you knew where God was because you could see him. He had somewhat of a tangible manifestation to where you could say God is over there. Think about it even goes down to the issue of the Ark of the Covenant. We talked a little bit about when the enemy, when the army of Israel would have the Ark of the Covenant in their warfare, they would win. But when the Philistines took it away, they began to lose because he said, I will localize my power hovering over this box. So much so that the temple was constructed in a way that the Holy of Holies was curtained off. Do you remember that? Curtained off. Why? Because God's presence would hover over the top of the Ark of the Covenant over what's called the mercy seat. What happened when Jesus died on the cross to the curtain? It was torn in two from what? Top to the bottom. That was when God went worldwide. Prior to that, it was a very localized presence. Even the Holy Spirit operated in the same way. We talk about the Holy Spirit as being indwelt in all believers, being the guarantee of the assurance of your salvation. But that was not the case in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon significant leaders, deliverers, fighters, kings for a period of time. And then he would depart. And that is why we have Psalms where David says, what? Take not thy Holy Spirit from me because the Holy Spirit would come and he would go. He he dwelt upon Saul as king. And then what? He left Saul and went upon David as the new anointed king of Israel. So you have this localized presence of God. So before Israel could be attacked in 586 BC, something significant had to occur. The spirit, the presence of God, the favor of God had to depart from the temple. So Ezekiel has this vision. He sees this hovering cloud all over the temple of God, and it begins to lift up and move. It goes through the east gate of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley, and hovers over the Mount of Olives. Then it departs. What happens here with Jesus? He's in the presence, he's in the temple. He sets up the shop because all the localized presence of God now dwells in who? But Jesus Christ, he is in the temple and then he departs. Where does he go? Out the eastern gate, across the Kidron Valley. And the next time we see him, he sets up shop on the Mount of Olives. Interesting. In Ezekiel chapter 43, the presence Ezekiel sees in a vision returns to the temple. What route does it take? It begins at the Mount of Olives and it goes through the Kidron Valley and back to the Eastern Gate. When you read Revelation and you see the return of Jesus, what pathway does he take? 
he shows up on the Mount of Olives and he spins through and goes back into Jerusalem. Now, the idea is that we would have missed that. You would have missed that when Jesus departs from the temple, you had no idea how significant it really was. His point was, we're done. I'm taking my presence elsewhere and you're getting shut down. We're done here. Does that make sense? All right, we move forward. Great. We're only one sentence in. Here we go. (laughs) As Jesus was leaving the temple and was walking away, his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God, Luke says. Mark adds, one of the disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, the, build, the, the temple has a rather rich history. Uh, there was Solomon's temple, and then there was Herod's temple. And, well, Herod was adding to this whole idea. The top of Mount Zion had been leveled, and there was a thousand square feet of space. And then they began to build on it, and he was building it bigger and more fantastic. And he began that in 20 B.C. As a matter of fact, these things took hundreds of years to build, so it was still in process when it was destroyed. It was never even completed, but it had been completed to such a significant degree that it was known as one of the world's wonders. Now, we have no idea what it was like to see this temple because we have nothing left of it today. As a matter of fact, if you go over to Israel today, if you go see what they call the foundations of the temple, the western wall, the wailing wall, what they say is original pieces, those were actually substructure. Those were underground. They were not even part of the actual temple building. All of that has been wiped out. But when I talk about amazing or magnificent, you merely have to read the words of Josephus, the Jewish historian, to know how exceptionally beautiful they were. And what I'm talking about is even everything around it leading up to the city. They had these massive bridges that would go across and the columns that lifted up the bridge were 24 feet around. They were enormous. Everything's made of marble. As a matter of fact, the cornerstones and a lot of the key uh, stones that held up the temple actually measured 20 to 40 feet long. All one rock. It's not a bunch of rock. One huge rock in excess of 100 tons a piece. Nobody has any idea now, even today, how they move the stones, how they cut them out, how they build with them. It's almost like the mystery of the pyramids. They don't know how they got these things moved around. These things were enormous and huge. So not only do you have this rising monstrosity of a temple, but all of it is marble, gleaming white, and then a huge portion of it is overlaid with gold to such a significant degree that when the sun hit it, it would blindingly shatter across the way so you could see it from miles away and know that shining hill was the temple of God. This is what the Galilean fishermen were saying. That's going to get destroyed, Jesus? Are you serious? Look how magnificent it is. Look how huge it is. No way. Really? They had a hard time grasping what he was saying about it being left desolate and destroyed. They couldn't imagine something of that nature. As a matter of fact, it was so strong and impenetrable that when it was finally attacked, they battered it for six days straight and didn't make a crack. That's how big this place is, how strong it is. Yet Jesus says these words. Do you see these great buildings? He asked. As for what you see here, I tell you the truth. The time will come when not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Did that happen? That was a prophecy. And they couldn't believe it could ever occur. And yet, in fact, it did. 
in AD 66, we are now in the story AD 34 about in AD 66, the Jews revolted against the Roman empire. And that was too much for the Roman empire. They got so frustrated. They launched out a general by the name of Vespasian. Now he would later become emperor. But at this time, he was a general. He was sent to quash and destroy the Jewish contingent. So he comes in and begins to wage war on them and began to tear them down. But then a major matter broke out in another part of the Roman Empire, and he had to put it on pause. So from 67 to 68, everything calmed down, and he went to go handle the other issue. Well, in the meantime, the Jews began to eat each other alive. This faction began to argue with that faction, and they began to infight, and who's in charge of this, and who's in charge of that, and they basically demoralized themselves. At the end, he then returned, but it wasn't him. He was now going to be named emperor, so he sent his son by the name of Titus to finish the job. Titus comes in, and he's going to destroy the temple and try to take Jerusalem. Well, they couldn't destroy the city because it was so strong, so he laid a five-month siege. Now, y'all know what a siege is? A siege is basically you shut them off from all their outside sources. You starve them out. That's what a siege is. You basically all camp around them and don't let them move. Then eventually they run out of water, they run out of food, and they begin to fight amongst themselves, and eventually they give up. That's the only way you take an impenetrable city. Well, they lasted for five months, and it was an incredibly horrible and heinous event. How we know that is the Jewish historian Josephus lived through it. So he was actually alive when that occurred. He was in the city when it occurred and he begins to talk about the atrocities and how women ate their children and it was just a very vicious horrible time so much of what we're about to read in chapter 24 deals specifically with the prophecy and the siege and the destruction of the temple unfortunately you're not quite sure when he deviates from that to talking about his return and the future because both are cataclysmic in nature it moves on. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately. And by the way, that's the best vantage point of the temple. And so they would sit on the Mount of Olives, and they're staring at this magnificent temple, and they begin to ask Jesus questions. Tell us, they said, when will these things happen? What will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Remember, that is a complicated question. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you for many will come in my name claiming I am he the Christ and the time is near and will deceive many, but do not follow them. You will hear of revolutions and of wars and of rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Do not be frightened for such things must happen first, but the end is still to come for the end. Luke says will not come right away. Now, that's your first indicator that we're talking about two events. Destruction of the temple, period of time, return of Jesus. Now, you need to understand that all the New Testament writers write with the mindset that they believe that Christ would come back in their lifetime. So when they write, they're like, yeah, he's coming any time now. He's coming any time now. Well, now, 2,000 years later, we're looking around going, what do you mean he's coming any time now? It's been 2,000 years. Oh, now he's coming any time now. Every succeeding generation has said that Jesus would come in their lifetime. Right? So when is he coming back? We don't know, and that's very specifically said. However, there are certain things that occur. Here's his first thing. He said there will be 
false messiahs and there will be wars and rumors of wars. Now, if this is only talking about the siege of Jerusalem, which one commentary focused on, they began to list out all the wars and rumors of wars in that day. They began to list out all the men that rose up and called themselves prophets that they were of God and led people astray. It talks about the Egyptian revolt. It talks about Theus. It talks about a bunch of historical figures that did that. Is this only talking about the siege or is it talking about the return of Christ? Well, here's what I've noticed about the issue of prophecy, and I'll teach more about this next year. But I've noticed that prophecy is very cyclical in nature. What do I mean? I mean, it starts out with one view that seems really easily understandable by the original audience. Then what it does is it begins to pick up speed and you see it fulfilled again. And you go, oh, it's fulfilled. Then all of a sudden it's fulfilled again. And you go, wait a second, I thought it was already fulfilled. Then it ultimately, in the return of Christ, is totally fulfilled. And you go, oh, that one's it. By the way, that's Jacob Prosh, by the way. That was a gentleman that you brought up. What's that? Midrash? Oh, interesting. Yeah, I got this over here. So anyway, when you see the cyclical nature, what it does is it begins to give you an idea that perhaps it's speaking of more than one event. Let me give you an analogy on how this might work. Uh, when, do you understand that Jesus talks about the Antichrist and then he also talks about Antichrists, plural? Okay, one is a specific guy. One is a nature of a type of person. What did he say? He said there will be many antichrists, right? Okay, so every generation seems to end up having this concept of, oh my gosh, the antichrist is in our generation. And they begin to say it. And you go, oh, those silly people. All right. We're now living in World War II era. You tell me who's a better fit for the antichrist than Hitler. Okay, you think I didn't get emails on that if I was hanging out at that time? Everyone's going to let me know. The Antichrist is here. Why is this guy, this German guy, totally focused on annihilating the Jews? Why is that his major passion in the world? Okay, of course he fit it. He fit it to a T. And he went, wow, this guy's totally the Antichrist. And then all of a sudden he dies. And you're like, and he's not. Okay, that's weird. <laughs> right? And by the way, I have a million emails from people letting me know who the Antichrist is currently. So if you'd like a listing of that, I'll just let you know. So there's always a new Antichrist on the map. So, but when you see the true Antichrist coming at the end, you're going to go, wow, he was even better fit than Hitler is. But there's a multiple fulfillment on these things. Now, in the same way, at the time of the siege, there was wars and rumors of wars. There was false messiahs. And guess what's happening now? There are wars and rumors of wars and false messiahs. And when Jesus returns, there's going to be more wars and rumors of wars and messiahs. So when you look at prophecy, you, you have to look and go, okay, there's some general concepts, but they're going to get more specific. That is what we keep our eyes out for. He said this, the end will not come right away. But nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. All these are the beginning of birth pains. And what do we know about birth pains? We know two things. One, they grow increasingly stronger in nature. And number two, they're all pointing to an event that is going to occur. The birth. You must be on your guard, he says, before all of this. They will lay hands on you and persecute you. Now, this is where people that are traditionally the whole tribulation, seven years, pre-trib, they begin to go through this and they'll say, this is the middle where the Antichrist turns on everybody. 
Do you understand that most commentaries believe this is still talking about the siege of Israel? They don't even believe this has anything to do with the end times. We haven't even hit that yet. That's later. A lot of what we look at as apocalyptic end-of-the-world literature, most scholars believe differently. What I'm going to try to do today is open up your mind to begin to think about prophecy in a slightly different way and begin to realize maybe some of the pat answers that we have may or may not be accurate. Some of them may be very accurate, but some of them may be slightly off. Then you will be handed over to prisons, to the local councils, flogged in the synagogues, put to death, and you will be hated by all the nations on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Pause. Is that the tribulation? Or did the disciples who just heard this actually go through that before the siege? Do you remember? Because they all ended up getting martyred, except for what? John. So they were all slain. They were all thrown before councils. So they would look at this and said, this is me. What are you talking about? I'm the one that fulfilled this. I, we were thrown over. We were the ones that were cast into prison. We're the ones that were torn apart. Could it be both? Wherever you are, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. In the midst of this promise of persecution, there is a hope, which is what Jesus said. I'm more concerned about my testimony than you are. And you know what? When you're brought before the council, the only reason you're brought there is so that I can talk to him. Don't worry about what you'll say. I can handle that one. We get so paranoid and so afraid. What's going to happen? How am I going to handle the persecution time? And will I be able to say this? And will I remember to say that? And will I say the right things? And what if I don't? What if I'm not a good testimony for the Lord? And he said, calm down. I got this one. When you are brought before councils, I'll take care of what you need to say. Be at peace for I will be with you. That is an important factor. At that time, many will turn away from the faith, he said. They will betray and hate each other. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. But they will put some of you to death. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And all men will hate you because of me. But not a hair of your head will perish. Pause. Didn't they all die? What's the difference between protection and martyrdom? How do those work together? It's a fascinating concept that none of them will perish, but yet all of them perished, unless it's future. Hmm. He who stands firm to the end will be saved, for by standing firm you will gain life, Luke said. And this gospel of the kingdom must first be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You're like, oh, we're talking about the future. It's, it's the end of the world. Really? What's the next line in Luke. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know its desolation is near. Dang it! Now we're in the past! Now they're talking about the siege again! So when you see standing in the holy place where it does not belong, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. What's that? The abomination of desolation. Here's what's interesting. It is believed by most scholars that that was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes in 167-168 B.C. 200 years before this event occurred. So why is he talking in future tense? 
because here's what occurred. In 167 and 168, this leader by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, a Roman, came in and began to storm Jerusalem. He wanted to obliterate, defame, and defile the Jewish people. So exactly as described according to being a king from the north that came down, as Daniel said, stormed in, took over the temple precinct, set up a pagan altar to Zeus on top of the holy altar of God, began to offer pagan sacrifices in the temple to Zeus, including offering pigs, which are obviously an unclean animal, an absolute defilement. He then turned all the priest quarters into brothels to completely demoralize the Jewish people. It doesn't get any more clear than that. So yes, most scholars believe that Antiochus is the abomination that causes desolation. But if so, why are we still talking about him 200 years later as if he's still to come? Now, some people say we're still talking about the siege and when the Romans stormed in through and took over and tore down the temple, they were walking through as Gentiles, unclean men walking into the temple precinct. That is the abomination that causes desolation. It is Rome taking of the temple. Other people said, no, this is going to be a greater fulfillment in the future. They're talking about the future when once again the temple will be stormed for it will be rebuilt and it will be attacked again. And the Antichrist is the abomination that causes desolation. Do we know which one it is? No. But do you understand that we must look at it in a slightly different fashion? Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. If this is about the siege, they did not. And that's why they got stuck in the city. Let those in the city get out on that day. No one who is on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them or enter the house or take anything out of the house. Let those in the country not enter the city. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. Remember Lot's wife. You guys remember Lot's wife? The big salt lick. You guys remember her? The whole city's being destroyed. She runs out and what does she do? Looks back. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, because those will be the days of great distress in the land and wrath against his people unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and will never be equaled again. They will fall by the sword and be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Past, future. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man, but you will not see it. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ or look, there he is. Don't go running off after them. Do not believe it for false Christ and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is in the desert, don't go out or here he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it for as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other from the east is visible in the west. So will be the coming of the son of man. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Where, Lord, they asked, 
Well, wherever there is a dead body or a carcass, the vultures gather. So be on your guard, for I have told you everything ahead of time. Huh. A couple problems with that, right? People getting deceived. Messiah showing up. Here's the first thing we must know about this. If you ever hear that Jesus has come back and he's somewhere in the world localized in some tiny region and you need to go over to Korea or you need to go over to somewhere else to go find him for he's leading a new movement, what do you immediately know? Bogus. Write it off. No way. One thing that is said over and over and over again is that when Jesus shows up, the whole world will know. What's the problem with that? Do y'all realize that there's great debate as to whether or not there's such a thing as a rapture? Everybody clear on that? Now, most people, within the last hundred years, that's the primary view. The primary view over the last hundred years is the idea of pre-tribulation rapture, which is, of course, the book Left Behind, if you're all familiar with that. That is the primary view of that book. And we've all been taught, and certainly I was raised under the concept of that notion, now, if you understand, that's only the last hundred years or so. Prior to that, everybody was post-trib. They all believed that the Christians would go through the tribulation and Jesus would come at the end. It's only within the last hundred years that people started getting on this pre-trib view. And then you go, well, I look at all the teachers. They're all teaching it. Yeah, in the last hundred years, not prior to that. So it all depends on where you're born, what time you're born, what generation you're born as to what is taught around you. So what is it? Well, there's wonderful arguments for both sides. But here's one of the problems that they begin to cite. First of all, now y'all realize that the word rapture is not in the Bible. Okay, what it uses is a word called the coming of or the caught up of, which is parousia. That is the word that is used for Jesus. Now, when it begins to talk about these events, it's very much of the secret concept. Jesus comes like a thief in the night and then people are silently taken away. You remember that? That's his concept. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But what's interesting is every time it talks about the return of Christ, it talks about the whole world knowing and it flashes like lightning where everyone sees it. You start going, wait a second. No, 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 no. Jesus comes halfway down real quiet like and then everyone gets zoop. They all get caught up and then everyone's left behind and then he goes back up into heaven. It's like a yo-yo effect. Then he comes back down all the way. Then he finishes his job and that's when he's visible. Is it? Perhaps that's, of course, what we have to discuss next year, right? Is that possible? Is that right? Here's one thing we must be sure that we do not fall trap to is this. A lot of people believe in the pre-trib rapture because they believe this concept. And be very, very careful with this one. Jesus is going to come and take his kids home because he would never let his kids go through horrible times like the tribulation. If that is your view, that's a horrible foundation to build your theology on. Why? Because he just promised that they would go through horrible times. Now, you may hold that view and have a biblical reason for it, and you may be completely solid in what you believe. And I'm not telling you you have to leave that view. All I'm telling you is make sure you believe it for the right reasons. Okay? Do not believe it because God would never let his people go through hard times. Right now, people are dying. Right now, the only reason you can even say that is you live in modern-day America. It's the only reason you have such a silly thought in your mind. Right now, I just got a whole thing 
from uh, one of uh, my buddies who is a missionary over in Myanmar. They've now just issued this whole concept about how they're going to destroy Christians. They just had a huge edict sent out. All over the world, Sudan, Sierra Leone, wherever you want to go, all over the world, Christians are being ripped out of their house and shot on the streets. You're going to tell them that God would never let them go through a hard time? Are you kidding me? It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So please do not allow that to flavor your view. Of course Jesus is going to let them go through persecution. Of course the church will go through the fire. That is always what the church does. Now, will it be in the end? Maybe, maybe not, but at least have your theology based on something other than just a pure emotion of God would never let that happen. Ah, that's not right. He moves forward. He said, Immediately following the distress of those days, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Now let's pause right there. What does he mean? Literally, is the stars going to fall out of the sky? When it talks about heaven being rolled up like a scroll, is that what's going to heaven, uh, going to happen? Are we going to have the sun, uh, hang out and the earth's gonna stop in its rotation? Is there going to be supernovas and comets? What's going to occur? Well, we don't know, you see, because one time, in the Old Testament, when it uses language like that, it was talking about cataclysmic political events. And it used stars, moon, sun. It was all a metaphor. But when Jesus came to earth to be born, signs in heaven started changing. Stars began to move and things began to line up. Could God move the stars and change the sky? Certainly he can. He didn't in the Old Testament when that language was used, but he certainly can. So is it metaphorical or is it literal? Well, one time it was this, one time it was this. That's why there's debate. At that time, it says, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, which no one knows what that is, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. So if this is the rapture, we're missing it. We're clearly talking about an event where the whole earth sees him in the sky. So we must not be talking about, if you're pre-trib, we're not talking about the rapture, we're now talking about the return of Christ, or are we still talking about the siege? Huh. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in and on the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds. From the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens, when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Now, most people, scholars would go, okay, we're away from the siege. We're now talking about the future coming of Christ. That will be visible all over the place. Lift up for your redemption is coming near. Now, learn this lesson from the fig tree and of all the trees. And he told them this parable. As soon as the tree's twigs get tender and their leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know that the kingdom of God is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Pause. What? 
Who's not going to die till it's fulfilled? If he's talking about the people that are in his immediate vicinity that he just said that to, and he said, you will not die, this generation will not die, then he's either mistaken, because that didn't happen, or we're misreading it. Here's what we do know. He already said this generation is under judgment, so he can't be talking about the current generation. It must be a future generation. So who is he talking about? Most scholars believe that what he says is once the signs start occurring, that generation, whenever that occurs, will not die until it's fulfilled. Does that make sense? That's a more accurate reading. Then he says, and he will, uh, whoops, sorry. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven nor the son, but only the father. Pause. Here's the other problem. Half the time you hear him say, here's all the signs. It's all going to lead up. You know exactly when it's going to occur and but you don't know when it's going to occur. You have no idea. I don't even know. Nobody knows. You're like, that's awfully contradictory, man. I mean, either, you know, or you don't know. Either you got signs and warnings or it's completely a mystery. That's where you begin to realize we're talking about multiple events all at the same time. Some events will have absolute warning. Some events will be completely out of the blue. He said this, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day that Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and destroyed them all. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. All right, let's examine that story for a moment. What happened on the flood story? You remember that? There was one righteous. That was Noah. He and his crew were able to what? When the flood came, it came and took away all what? The bad people. It was the judgment. So it actually came and swept away the bad guys and the good guys were left. Are we all clear? Well, what's interesting is that it's the opposite in the next scenario. Look at the next scenario. Luke says, it was same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. I tell you, on that night, two people will be left. Two people will be what? In one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other is left. Therefore, keep watch because you don't know the day your Lord will come. Oop, problem. In the flood, who was taken away? The unrighteous. In Lot's scenario, who was taken away? The righteous. It'll be just like that. And you're like, just like what? I don't even know what you just said. What's fascinating is we always look at this and we go, oh, that's a rapture passage. Oh, everyone's there. One is taken away. Do you understand that three out of the five commentaries that I examined said that is actually a taking away of judgment? It's actually the wicked that are taken away. You're like, no, Tim LaHaye said that it is the righteous that are taken away. Darn it. So who's getting taken away? Where are they getting taken to? And what's the whole point? It's not revealed. No one even knows why they're being removed. 
and where their destination is. So what is the point of this passage? Is the point of the passage to describe to you exactly what's going to occur? No. What's the point? In both scenarios, the same event is said, which is what? When it occurred, most people didn't care, didn't pay attention, didn't notice, and were doing life as normal. When sulfur rained down on Sodom, it was caught a lot of people off guard because all they were doing was doing everyday average stuff. When the flood hit, everybody was doing average everyday stuff and they couldn't care less about this whole Jesus God thing. Right? So what is his point to us? As Moses cried out to them year after year, there will be a flood. No one was paying attention. So what's our message for today in that passage? It's what? If you try and live your life as if Jesus is not coming back, boy, is it going to be a surprise. If you just go on about your life because you got stuff to do and we don't need to focus on this Jesus add-on enhancement life thing. If I don't need to focus on the fact that God is king and that he will send his son to return and we will be held accountable for what we're doing and there will not be a time at the end of the world, then boy, it's really going to ruin your day. That's the point. To drive that point home, he finishes with this parable. He says this, be on your guard, be alert, for you do not know when that time will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Anybody find it odd that Jesus is related to a thief? You're like, why can't you be a good guy? Why, what's the thief thing about? Because we always do this thief in the night, right? Anybody remember those movies from the 70s? Thief in the night, Mark of the Beast. You guys remember those? Those were shared with me as a child. No wonder I'm so screwed up. And why I don't carry a credit card. It's the Mark of the Beast. Okay, moving on. I'm kidding. I, I do. I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> That's what I was told as I was growing up. Anyway, uh, have you heard they're putting chips into the paws of animals? Oh, my gosh. Okay, moving on. Here we go. It's, <laughs> by the way, every new technological advance, I get an email. Okay. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house, puts his servants in charge, each with an assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows, or at dawn. What time is Jesus coming back? I don't know. We just covered every possible time. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of his servants in his household to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. In other words, what are we supposed to be doing when Jesus shows back up? But fulfilling the great commission and being the salt and light of the earth. If we're just screwing around and doing our own thing, that's really going to be a bad time. When Jesus all of a sudden goes, hey, I'm back. And you're like, oh, I haven't followed you in the last five years. That's not good. He put you in charge. He gave you a task. He said, as a believer, you have a responsibility in this world. You do what I ask you to do. This is not about you anymore. This is about me and the advancement of my kingdom. What are you doing with your life? He said, I tell you the truth. If he finds that servant doing well when he returns, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. But suppose that the wicked, the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. Pause. 
Welcome to America. What's interesting is this is the first of three parables. And every time it says there will be a long pause, a long delay before the master returns. If the disciples were paying attention, what are they beginning to pick up on? There's a big gap. Now, they didn't know that. Whenever the prophets would see the coming of Christ and the return of Christ, they assume it was one event. So when you read Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah, it will sound like it's one day. Jesus comes, sets up his kingdom. That's why all the Jews were confused. As they said, until you set up your kingdom, you're obviously not the Messiah. He said, no, 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 no. I'm going to come, die for your sins. I'm going to be gone for a while, and I'm going to come back, and then I'll set up my victory. They didn't understand that because prophecy never talks that way. It's almost like looking over mountaintop to mountaintop. It looks like one long plateau, and you don't realize there's huge valleys in between. That's the difficulty of prophecy. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. But suppose the servant is wicked and says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat his fellow men, servants and maid servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. Oh, that master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, with the unbelievers, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Be careful or your hearts will be weighted down with dissipation, Luke says, drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap, for it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape what is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What I say to you, Mark says, I say to everyone, watch. Then what is our message? Be ready. Do you understand that we can either get caught up in all the complexities, we can argue about all the details, and completely miss the glory of God? Why did He give us this message? A couple reasons. One is for encouragement and hope. You go, encouragement and hope? What are you talking about? He just told me that my way of life is going to get destroyed. He just told me that now there's going to be terrible persecution. He just told me I may well end up getting beheaded in this persecution. He just told me that now everything's going to shut down. There's going to be scary stuff in the sky. There's terror. There's apprehension. There's turmoil. What in the world is encouraging about that? The only reason we say that is because we live here where life is good. But if you're the original readers of this, who live in a time when your family is being slaughtered, it's nice to know that Jesus is still in control and that he won't let it go on forever. To the persecuted, this is the greatest message of hope, which means I am watching. Oh, I'll shut it down and you will be with me. It is only disturbing to the comfortable, which is why it's been disturbing to me my whole life. I don't like my life being disrupted. I don't like bad things happening. I don't like disturbance, right? But that's only because things are good in my world. Isn't it nice to know if you're being persecuted that someone's on your side? Isn't it nice to know that Jesus will beat up the bad guys? 
the book of Revelation begins with a phrase that says, encourage one another with these words. It won't go on forever. Hmm. The other main reason is that if we do not study things like this, if we do not study books like Revelation, you will miss some of the greatest descriptions of our Lord Jesus in power in all of the Bible. And you won't see him as the mighty king that he is. Is it worth studying? Yes, it is. Is it complicated? Yes, it is. Am I nervous about next year because of the amount of research I have to put into it? You better believe it. But what must we take away? Live every day knowing that your king can show up anytime he wants. And when he arrives, we should be about the tasks he asked us to do. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for an encouragement. And Lord, we look forward to a time when we will be able to dive into this a bit more in detail. But until then, may we catch up our hearts only with the major issues, the major issues that you are king, that you will return, and that we are your children, eagerly awaiting your return, wanting to praise you, wanting to see you for who you are. And Lord, that you are our message of hope. May all that is you Encompass all that we are, that we might receive you properly, worship you with all our hearts. And Lord, we would be your children for this generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.